Hello and welcome to this episode of the Catnaps podcast with me, Jeremy, a member of the public, Christy Sanderson, the principal investigator, and Alicia Austin, a senior lecturer in paramedic science at Hertfordshire University. Alicia is new to research and is a welcome addition to the Catnaps team. Poor sleep and fatigue are common in acute and emergency healthcare staff. And the COVID-19 pandemic has left many staff stressed and exhausted. This project will explore how fatigue can be managed in the NHS ambulance workforce and the best ways staff can be helped to sleep better. CatNAPS is an NHR-funded study looking to produce an Ambulance Trust National Fatigue Risk Management System that is acceptable and feasible to improve safety for patients and staff. The purpose of this series of podcasts is to share with listeners news of the progression of the study and hopefully provide an interesting discussion worthy of your time listening. So, first of all, Christy, have you had any subsequent thoughts since the last podcast that have struck thunder in the cerebral cortex? Oh, what an ask. So, it's great to be back here, Jeremy. So, actually, this week I've had a really fascinating week in terms of sharing what we're doing in CatNAPS projects across a different sector. So I had the great pleasure and privilege to um, visit a Ministry of Defence facility this week. Um, Official Secrets Act and everything, I can't tell you much more, but on another research project we're doing that also has uh, a, a very strong interest around sort of staff wellbeing and fatigue had a great opportunity to showcase what we're finding in CatNAPs and to see how that relates and resonates to another workforce that is high demand, high risk, 24-hour performance. And we were basically able to to swap notes. And it was fantastic because while we're doing our project for the ambulance workforce, we know it has relevance to other parts of the NHS but also to other industries because we think of those industries that have been doing fatigue management for a long time, whether it's aviation, rail, transport, um, they've learnt a lot in terms of the things that work for their workforce. And there are things that are different and things that are the same. So it was really enlightening to sit down um, with a completely different setting, share notes and see that we actually share a lot in common. So there's therefore a lot that we can share in terms of our learning, in terms of what they're finding Um, about how to best support their staff and what we're finding. So it was just a really nice opportunity to get our findings out to a wider audience. I remember (coughs) during one of the conversations that I took part in when you asked me to join that I raised the possibility that there could be relevance um, to other emergency, emergency works like the fire brigade and the police and the RNLI, for example, and do you see there there could be uh, lessons that could be rolled out or transferred? Absolutely, and we've already had some fantastic conversations with Fire and Rescue Service and with police um, because they also are kind of struggling with how to manage and support staff around sleep and fatigue um, in terms of keeping their staff safe, but also making sure that, you know, obviously providing a, a high-quality service to their communities. So, again, they've got their own initiatives underway, but we've had a chance, again, to sort of share and compare notes and see what are we doing that's kind of similar, that we can kind of share recommendations 
and where do we think there are kind of unique things that we need to sort of focus on for our respective workforces. So we've kind of already started some of that joint working, which again is really exciting when you're kind of got your head buried in your sort of particular setting and it's kind of beavering away to get out there and see that actually there's lots of other settings that are that are dealing with the same challenges. So, yeah, definitely. You, you got me now thinking about dissemination. I mean, I, it's your – you are the PI here. You, you are uh, the person in charge. And I wonder if you think there could be mileage in – as part of the dissemination uh, aspect, bringing the fire brigade and the police lifeboat or whatever – with the ambulance trust into the same room to have a conversation to see where there's, there could be sort of a common movement. I think that would be really exciting. <laughs> we are kind of lucky in a way across the emergency services is there already are some cross-service sort of meetings, forums, working groups that do try and bring groups together across the services to share learning. So we've seen that kind of around mental health, mental health promotion. Um, we've seen that around some important work around suicide prevention um, so I think there's no reason why we can't continue those conversations and have a focus around sleep and fatigue because we do have a lot to share with each other and often we need to kind of recognise that these services do a lot of joint working anyway. So it makes a lot of sense to see how can we kind of share our knowledge and resources. One of the stakeholders that uh, is not often mentioned um, within the research uh, environment or <coughs> is the Department of Health. I mean, do, do you think that there, there should be... Uh, some instruction going to the, the, the Minister of Health uh, or the Department of Health as to the importance of this, uh, of the, of this topic. Absolutely. And, in fact, we're, we're really lucky in that this study is funded by the National Institute of Health and Care and Research through one of their national research programs around health services research. But we also sit within um, one of the NIHR infrastructure for research which is the NIHR applied research collaboration east of England so we already have a channel to the department of health and social care and we actually already have a channel through to the secretary of state's office so periodically um, our arcs and other sort of NIHR funded researchers will get requests to say what are researchers doing to sort of fix this problem is anyone doing any research in workforce so we've already had a chance to feed our research up the chain of command, so to speak, um, and to kind of get it get it noticed higher up in the system. So we're we're very lucky in that respect. Bonza, Christy, Bonza. <laughs> At what point, Christy, did you invite uh, Alicia to take part in the study? Was she part of the designing the research question, or were her qualities identified after the study began? So when we designed the study, one of our um, key experts on the team is Professor Julie Williams at University of Hertfordshire. So we always knew that we wanted to appoint someone to work with Julia that was bringing that expertise from the paramedic point of view. So we kind of had this post identified, but we, we didn't know who, who might fill that post. Um, so yeah, through, through kind of an open recruitment process, we were absolutely delighted that Alicia joined the team because um, she's taking a very academic and scholarly view, but also drawing on her kind of own knowledge and expertise as an experienced paramedic. So it was kind of the best of both worlds for us. So, um, you know, Alicia's been absolutely integral to particularly designing how we ask frontline staff about their experiences around fatigue and it's been fantastic to work with her so far. Wonderful. 
It's a stab in the dark, but much like one of the reasons paramedics get called out. But I'm guessing that there are some of our listeners who are surprised at the number of paramedic voices there are on the team. So how, is it, how important is it to you to have more than just one paramedic voice? It's, in, it's integral. So from my point of view um, as the chief investigator, I've designed and delivery, delivered a project that at its heart is about improving the work experience of people who, who work in ambulance services and paramedics, of course, are a key part of that workforce. But I myself am not a paramedic. So there's always kind of strengths and weaknesses for a researcher who doesn't align with the particular setting doing the research. The positives of are, are that I'm completely independent. I kind of I have no agenda. I have um, hopefully kind of no sort of overt interest that I'd want to steer it from my kind of clinical experience. So I can look almost independently broadly across the whole kind of content of the project. But I can't do this work without the input from the people who it might potentially benefit from this research. So that's why the paramedic voice is so important. And as you mentioned, we have a number of paramedics on the project. But also importantly, why I think the patient and public voice is important, because ultimately they're beneficiaries of this research as well. So for me, it's part of... um, doing credible research in a setting as a researcher when I myself am not from that particular setting. Mm. Turning to you now, Alicia, um, is this the first research study you've been actively involved in or have there been others? <coughs> so I started my uh, research journey with South Central Ambulance Service, so I became a research paramedic there. Um, but unfortunately, due to COVID, um, I was pulled to work frontline again So I actually never got to finish the projects that I started. Um, So I have had involvement in other research projects previously, um, but I've never had a role quite um, as uh, big as this one, essentially. Mm. Is your interest in research newly developed or have you been wanting to get involved in research for some time? This is a really interesting question, actually. I think my passion for research really developed during my undergraduate studies. Um, I realised that research was extremely powerful in changing clinical practice and clinical care and professional practice as well, not just clinical practice. Um, So the university I was at was really good at promoting evidence-based practice and how we could help develop that. And it was very clear to me early on that research is completely fundamental and crucial to the expansion of not just the paramedic profession, but all healthcare professions. Um, And ultimately, with us doing that, it leads to better clinical outcomes and better patient outcomes. And that's what we want at the end of the day. We want, as, as a paramedic, I want to treat my patients in the best, um, most effective and safe way. Um, and I realised how powerful research was in that. So um, I really, really enjoyed my undergraduate dissertation um, and it really provoked and uh, started my interest in research. So I, I pretty much knew from that point I wanted to get involved in research. What was your dissertation? Um, it was in stroke recognition tools. So uh, in the UK, uh, the FAST test was implemented as the stroke recognition tool. Off the top of my head, I think it was about 2004. 
thinking back a few years now <laughs> to my undergraduate degree, but it was the early 2000s. Um, and I was using that in my clinical practice as a student and recognised that it wouldn't pick up on all types of strokes that I was seeing with my patients. So that led me into doing some reading, uh, searching the literature and reading evidence and research around that. And um, so my undergraduate dissertation was a literature review on um, the various different stroke recognition tools that um, exist and are out there. Which one do you say? Do you think there's, I was about to say, do you think that the FAST tool could be improved? But maybe I ought to be asking, what other ones do you think are better? This is quite a complicated <laughs> question, actually. Um, so there's a reason we still do, um, that we still utilise and it's still promoted within the ambulance services and um, pre-hospital, out-of-hospital sort of education. There's a reason we still use the FAST test and that's because essentially people have tried to do modified versions of other scales and, and create other stroke recognition tools and the FAST test always seems to statistically sort of um, outperform or perform just as well as these other ones do. Uh, the new ones that are created tend to have issues in certain areas. Um, so I think now, as far as my understanding is, the FAST test is still what's used and what's promoted, especially in um, undergraduate paramedic education. Um, but that is supplemented with a serious amount of additional knowledge um, and other ways to recognize strokes. So your FAST test should be used as like an immediate stroke recognition tool. When you walk in, I'm going to do face, arm, speech, time. Um, and then, oh, I still think something else is going on. Maybe I'm going to utilize my other clinical knowledge now. Um, so I think now it's more a case of using it in conjunction with additional knowledge. Um, so I think that's more what we're going towards. I've got um, many years behind me of interest in stroke. I used to be a staff nurse on a stroke unit for many years. So we'll be coming back to uh, the, the topic of stroke. But uh, can I just ask, first of all, in your professional capacity as a, as, as a, as a lecturer in paramedic science, do you have a preference between uh, qualitative uh, research or quantitative research? Wow, yeah, uh, that is a, an interesting question. I think, so I, my background, I did A-level maths. So I, and I did statistics within that two modules, which I wasn't happy about at the time. <laughs> but um, certainly it was very, very useful, in, especially my undergraduate degree, um, because initially I could pick up research papers and understand them. I knew the statistical tests. I could understand what they, what they meant. Um, so I think naturally I would, um, or certainly in my earlier career, I found it easy to understand and read and I understood the importance of quantitative research given its positivist nature. You know, um, this is testable, this is objective. Those are things as a paramedic you can relate to. Does this IGL work or not, yes or no? And so it's quite easy, I think, for novice researchers if you understand statistics, to pick up quantitative research. And I think as I've grown in my research career, I now understand the application and the importance of qualitative research. And actually my um, PhD proposal is 
predominantly qualitative, potentially mixed methods. Obviously, it's a PhD, so it's a journey. Um, so it might change, but there's definitely a big qualitative focus within that. And I recognize now as a more experienced clinician and researcher that in that same way, evidence-based practice can't continue to grow um, without qualitative research. So I feel like I've skirted the question a little bit here, um, but I think they're equally as powerful, but just for completely different subjects in different ways. I did not know you're doing a PhD. Tell me more about your PhD. Um, so I, I submitted my proposal, my PhD. Um, I've received funding to, uh, successfully got funding to do that. Um, so I'm just basically awaiting me starting, enrolling myself in, in the journey. Um, I'm going to be doing it part-time uh, whilst working full-time. So I think the estimate is five to six years. Um, and I'm very excited and very grateful to be given that opportunity. And is this going to be at Harvard? Yes, it is, yeah. And what is your topic of uh, study? So the idea um, is essentially around uh, assessing how or looking into how paramedics assess and manage patients with learning disabilities in the out-of-hospital environment. Oh, that's going to be an interesting one. Yes, a very interesting one. Um I'm interested in your journey to lecturing in paramedic science. Were you you were a paramedic yourself? Where was that, and for how long were you a paramedic? Um, so <coughs> I have always worked for um, South Central Ambulance Service. Um, so currently, I've been a qualified paramedic for five and a half years. Coming up four, I'm pretty sure. Um, and I've always stayed um, with South Central Ambulance Service or SCAS. Um, I had a bank contract and I've it relapsed and I've recently got it back so I'm still a practicing frontline paramedic I think my last shift was last Sunday what, where is South Central I mean sort of, I, I imagine Kent or something like that is it um so South Central is a funny shaped ambulance service um, <laughs> in comparison to all the other ones because it's long and thin it's like a I believe it's like a backwards L shape Right. Um, so it covers anywhere from, I think the most north part is Milton Keynes and okay. then down to um, sort of Oxford and then continuing down south to Southampton. So it's a long, thin patch that's covered. Ye God, good Lord. What a strange, what a strange thing. What a very strange sh sh shape your driving must take. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. What, what were your impressions of or memories of when you were sitting in a classroom being taught paramedic science? You know, has it, were your expectations met in, in reality or were they very different when you began? <clears throat> I think definitely my expectations were met. Um, I think probably something that maybe all students um, underestimate is the, or, or certainly on healthcare programmes, is the academic side of... Um, healthcare courses, um, I think I, I realised there was placement <laughs> um, and I understood the impact and how important that was and I probably didn't realise how important the academic side of things actually was to the progression in the degree and the progression of your, um, your clinical practice. Um, so I think probably the only thing I'd say is, uh, yeah, I, I underestimated maybe a tiny bit the academic side um, but I really enjoyed my um, undergraduate degree 
Um, and actually, it's funny how your under your own personal undergraduate experiences shape your development and your um, how you deliver things as a lecturer. Um, I've definitely taken things that I maybe didn't like so much in my own undergraduate journey, and I've tried to really, you know, focus and, and push those to not be what they were, sort of in my own experience. Um, so yeah, I've definitely experienced that, especially. I'm currently doing my the end of my postgraduate certificate in higher education and a lot of that is about reflecting and understanding how the differences between you know the students you've got in front of you and your own undergraduate journey and and just reflecting on that and changing your ability as a lecturer to be the best lecturer you can be for the benefit of anybody who's thinking of becoming a paramedic what would you so what would you recommend to them in the sense of what do you wish that you knew before you actually began training to be a paramedic? Wow, there's so much there I could say, I think. Well, um, say it all. <laughs> <clears throat> I'm just trying to think now. What would I say to, to younger me, to me with less wrinkles? Um <laughs> Make, I, I maybe make sure you've got a good family um, and friends sort of support network. Um, th that's important because I think especially if you're younger and you come into the profession um, and you haven't had to deal with things like uh, maybe death before, then some of those emotional challenges can be quite big hurdles to overcome. So I think it's very important to have a solid network of, of support whether it be family friends neighbors whoever um but yeah just have have a good support network would probably be my first thing definitely and what would you say to somebody who's thinking of becoming a paramedic how best to prepare them academically i'm gonna i'm gonna my answer is gonna be based off probably what I've found over the past few years that my students struggle with the most, and that is writing assignments, writing yeah. academic um, academic writing and, and critically writing. So um, I'd maybe actually say read some books just on that. It doesn't have to be profession-specific because the whole point of going to university is that we will teach you those paramedic skills and that paramedic-based knowledge. But I think it's those... Um, fundamental and sort of um, transferable skills that some students come into the course sort of tying in with what we spoke about earlier not realizing how academic it is and not being particularly strong in those areas and therefore they start to struggle and it's not because they're not a fantastic student paramedic you know on placement they might be very personable but they then have to submit an essay and it's just a load of waffle, basically. <laughs> <laughs> There's a definite skill between writing an essay yes. for a, as a sixth former and being writing an essay yeah, as an academic. Yeah, definitely. Mm. Yes. Um, what were your impressions or memories of when you were sitting in a classroom? Or oh, you, you, you just covered that. If a video triage was available to you when working as a paramedic, I'm just what difference would it would it have made to the care you could have delivered? I'm just thinking about. It's become quite topical that there, with, with the, the advancement of technology is possible to have these uh, video uh, conversations. 
Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, um, I know there's a study ongoing currently, currently, sorry, uh, I believe it's called Phototonic. Um, it's, I know it's um, implemented in the London Ambulance Service. I think it's with uh, UCL as well and potentially some other, um, other people involved as well with that. Um, and they're currently trialling video triage um, for stroke patients, interestingly. Um, and that's literally underway. So some of my <laughs> students actually were telling me about their experience doing that on placement, which is really interesting to hear from my point of view. Um, I mean, video triaging in the pre-hospital or out-of-hospital environment has been sort of looked into before in other contexts. I know, I think there was a systematic review done in 2018, and that was with regards to trauma care um, and how it, video triaging could be used in trauma care. Um, I know Yorkshire Ambulance Service post-COVID um, did a small study looking at... Um, video triaging in low acuity patients, so patients that weren't time critical, weren't really unwell, um, and they trialled it there again. But I think certainly from my reading of the literature, all the, the consensus around video triaging currently is that there's not enough good quality evidence to say whether it's really, really useful or whether in some ways it could hinder um, the progression or the management of people on scene in managing whatever they're dealing with so I think certainly for me it could be really really powerful I think we just need a little bit more concrete evidence to um to cement that really whether it is whether it's going to be useful or not if that evidence ever becomes available do you think that it will feature in paramedic training or if not do you foresee a time when it could do Yes, yeah, certainly. Yeah, I think um, certainly with the education system, um, we have to keep up to date with what we're teaching. And if that is something that is implemented into clinical care, we will have to we will have to teach our students the fundamentals of how to use video triaging correctly and competently, the same as any other paramedic skill. Mm. Paramedics have access, I know, to a growing number of medical devices and technologies some of them app-based, uh, all adding to the quality of care they, that can be delivered, but do they similarly add to the stress levels, having so much technology to manage? I think, um, I think a lot of the main pieces of technology that we use, um, the students have quite a lot of time to get used to um, in their undergraduate degree, and we train them on that. So I think um, as it stands currently, I think most people, when they go out into practice as a qualified paramedic, um, there's not often new developments in technology. So most students have been trained quite um, thoroughly in those pieces of equipment. So I'd say currently, um, we're pro yeah, we do all right. We do all right <laughs> with the technology just about. Mm. Uh, coming into paramedic education, there's a fresh pair of eyes are there any components of the curriculum you would change if you could? I think that's actually a really um, interesting question. I think for me personally, the curriculum is constantly changing or adapting, like we just spoke about, to um, changes in evidence. Um, another thing we sort of change the curriculum around or we can change the curriculum around is the sort of jobs um, that paramedics are attending, um, the, the role of a paramedic has changed so drastically over the last 
50, 40, 30, 20, 10, five years even. And um, it will continue to change. So I think it's really important that as a higher education providers, we keep up to date with those changes and we're not teaching students how to be the paramedic of 10 years ago. Um, and that, as I said, will be based on the evidence come out and how the ambulance service is being used and the patients that are contacting the service and, and what they need from us. So I think there isn't anything specifically um, I would change because it is quite consistently changing. Mm -hmm. Is this, if you could control the current curriculum, is there something you would like to add? I don't think there is actually. That's good. Um, I mean, my passion and interest has always been research, but I think the importance of research is now is stressed and pushed and it's part of the um, College of Paramedics um, curriculum that they published and I think that's well established now. So I'm always pushing for more research, but we, yeah, we, we do teach a lot about research methods and evidence-based practice and the need for that. Um, currently, so there probably actually isn't anything I would add. Good, good. Uh, putting aside the research topic that you do for your PhD, if you could, if you had the money to commission a research question, what would be the most pressing one? I think that is probably the most difficult question um, that you've asked me so far, actually, um, because I think as a profession, we are one of the newer healthcare professions and actually there are still gaps in the evidence base for some of the things that we currently do um so i think i could pick so many topics i think it would be nice to see um a development in more qualitative and mixed methods literature and that's because sort of historically any out-of-hospital research has been more focused around things like cardiac arrest, your resuscitation, your um, trauma management, um, and, and predominantly that lends itself to more of a quantitative-based study. So there's been quite a lot of big quantitative studies. So I think it would be nice to see the development of more qualitative or mixed-methods literature um, and really just focusing on patient and public involvement uh, and things like that to help promote, uh, promote sorry, not prevent, um, help promote those patient outcomes um, and, and just the, the safety and well-being and just to continue to grow the profession, really. Oh. I've asked you a lot of questions. Is there a question I haven't asked that you wish I had? <clears throat> no, I don't, I don't think so, no. <laughs> Christy, can I bring you in here now? What thoughts have you got? It was really fantastic to hear Alicia talk about her experiences from a student and then reflecting what it's like now on the other side as a senior lecturer. Um, and I really liked how Alicia mentioned the importance of having that support network around you because um, thinking about self-care and the importance of self-care and what it takes to you know, be a high-performing health professional, self-care is such a critical part of that and I think universities have got a lot better in terms of their um, education and curriculum development around the importance of that and sorts of strategies that people can use. For me, bringing it back to catnaps, from sort of the beginning we flagged contribution 
to curriculum from this project as one of the outputs we were interested in because we think we are generating learning that will be really, really important for student paramedics but also newly qualified paramedics to understand about what are the risks around fatigue, what does good sleep quality look like, how do you manage yourself before and after shift. Um, because student paramedics are out on placement so early, we need to start talking about that so early. Um, and it is happening but I think we'll be able to um, make some really important contributions to the conversations around how do we prepare student paramedics, how do we support newly qualified paramedics in terms of the things that's within their control in terms of helping to support their sleep quality and managing their fatigue. So when it comes to the dissemination, a conversation is going to be necessary with the commissioners of the education program. So we actually had some very early conversations with College of Paramedics actually because they do publish, um, you know, their curriculum. So we've kind of already got um, a, a sort of national authoritative body that produces the curriculum. So we'll be looking to feed into that um, in due course. Golly, absolutely amazing. Well, <clears throat> once again, thank you, Alicia and Christy. But as the butter toast of time falls butter side down onto the cat... And the Marmite jar of destiny is but an empty pot. I notice <clears throat> it is the end of our podcast. So thank you for listening and please encourage all your friends and relations to tune in. The next podcast will be along very soon. And if anyone listening wishes to know more about the study, details can be found on the NIHR Applied Research Collaboration website and on the UEA website. But if you just Google Catnap Study Christy Sanderson, you will find it. Thank you for listening and goodbye.